preservation of our soul shine I can feel it yours and mine close your eyes and witness it inside in your bones you will know trust and let go All Things in the Name of Love, Empathy, Trauma, and the Art of Not Losing Yourself with Jen Taylor. I'm your host, Dr. Erica Riesberg. Today I'm speaking with the most amazing woman who has the biggest heart I've ever encountered, Jen Taylor, who is the mother of 18. And the reason I say that is because you didn't bear all of them. (laughs) And that taking on foster children and, and adopting and that whole thing is just so amazing, especially in light of the fact that you grew up in an environment where you were abused. So that's how I'm launching this because I want to hear this whole story about you and your journey and what drew you past, like what, what helped you with the healing? We'll start there. We'll help. What, what, Tell me the brief, as brief as you can, as much as you feel comfortable sharing about your childhood that brought you to where you are now. Well, that's loaded, but I think I can do a pretty good job. So (laughs) I was not put into foster care as a child. They did come to our house and I, I have a sister who's three years younger than I am. And I remember watching the woman drive away and wondering why I wasn't with her. And I was probably about 10. So I was pretty young and The interesting thing about kids is that I always knew something wasn't right, but you don't necessarily know what's right or how it's wrong because you don't really have anything to compare it to. There's no life experience. You don't go to your friend's houses and like investigate what's different about their house. You're just a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I, I knew things were not right and I um, did not feel comfortable or want to be there. I did have a teacher in third grade. My parents divorced when I was six. My mom remarried when I was nine. And in my book, I refer to him as the monster. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was only with him for five years. So, but it was a a really hard five years. And there were very tough times all in between there also. But he was the worst of them, as was my biological father, who I fortunately didn't spend much time. I think I saw him six times between when I was six and when he passed away, geez, 17 years ago. Wow. So yeah, I was fortunate that I didn't see him. Yeah. He was, he was not a pleasant person to be around. As a kid though, you want it to be different and you think mm-hmm. you're doing something wrong and you, you feel like if you were just better at whatever, grades or sports or a good kid, or you don't even know how to pinpoint it, but kids kind of innately feel like they've done something wrong. hmm So my parents divorced. Uh, Like I said, I was six. I was in second grade though. I was a year ahead. And that was a really tough year in school. My teacher, and it could be my memory. Maybe she was delightful, but I remember her as being really strict and not very pleasant, kind of mean. And I felt like, especially retrospectively, like she did not know how to meet the needs that I had. This little girl who thinks that her parents divorce is her fault. Mm-hmm. And we had moved to a different place and, you know, she didn't handle it well from my recollection. And I was certainly not handling it well. Right. <laughs> right. Cause you know, I was a six year old kid who was thinking I was blaming myself. Mm. I went to third grade and uh, Carolyn St. Jean, who I have been in touch with for the last many years, I actually found her 19 years ago, it was just over 19 years. I was pregnant with my daughter who's 19. And I, I had done so much public speaking and work with Head Start and in foster care and stuff like that, that I thought, geez, this person I talk about all the time is making the most pivotal change in my life. It's the only one that doesn't know. And she's really the only one that should. Mm-hmm. So I found her in Rhode Island. I lived in Alaska. Um, I, I was from Rhode Island. So she was still in Rhode Island. She had moved around a lot, but ended up right back at the same school that I went to teaching third grade. Wow. So I flew pregnant with five kids to Rhode Island and I spent a weekend with her. I was in her class. 
And I got to tell her. So here's the thing. She didn't remember me. And people always say, oh, that's too bad. And I think, no, it's better. Because she was just a human being. She was technically doing her job. Mm -hmm. But that's so, that's such a shitty way to say it, right? Because she wasn't just doing her job. She was a teacher who loved her kids and put Mm -hmm. herself into it. She's a teacher that made me feel smart and beautiful and special and important. And to her, I was worth it. Mm. And because I was worth it to her, so I'm only seven. My mom remarried when I was nine. Things got significantly worse Mm. over time. But I knew I was worth it to her. And I also learned as I got older that you can make an enormous difference in the life of someone without knowing it Mm -hmm. by just being yourself, kind of almost in passing. And she also planted the seed where I knew that life wasn't right. I knew that this isn't what it was supposed to be like, but I could make it different. And so I wanted to do for someone else what she did for me. Foster care was a combination of things. At 15, I had an OBGYN appointment where he said, you might not be able to have kids. I don't know why. I I mean, even looking back with all the life experience now at almost 49 that I have, I'm not sure what he was seeing. But even if it was intuitively, he told me, (laughs) you might not be able to have kids. You will probably have to go through infertility. Things were not right with my reproductive system at that point, but they weren't so wrong that that should have been something he would have said to me. But I'm, I'm thankful for that because I did go through infertility. I went through seven surgeries. Wow. I got up to in vitro and I, and I was maxed out on medication. I was maxed out mm-hmm. on Clomid. Anyone who's done infertility, I was maxed out on Clomid and I was maxed out on Provera. So progesterone, like I mm. was on this cycle, right? Oh, and, your poor body. Right. You have these seven surgeries, they're day surgeries. So, you know, <laughs> you go home when they're done. It's not like you need to stay in the hospital and just feel wrecked and broken and like the female parts of you aren't working. Right. I, I got up to the point where he's like, well, next is in vitro. And I was married at 19, which was dumb, but I mean, I'm grateful You're for 19. all of my mistakes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I went through uh, about 10 months of infertility and we wanted to have kids and we were in the air force. It was at the time it was great. Right. And, but I knew in vitro wasn't happening. That mm-hmm. was not the path I was ever going to take. Mm-hmm. And I told him that. And I just said, look, I know at 20 and 21, you're as fertile as you're ever going to be. And we've gotten this far, but I like, I'm tapping out here. Mm-hmm. I'm done. So in weaning me off of the medication, they do, I mean, you're getting blood taken all the time. And I went into the office to have an appointment with him and I lived in Hawaii at the time uh, in the Air Force and had this <laughs> little Asian you know, doctor who was super introverted and soft-spoken, but just lovely. Mm. And he came in and he hugged me, Aww. which was very odd. You know, like he's this introverted little, and he said, you're pregnant and it's not on the cycle I put you on. This is your miracle Aww. from God. You may not ever be able to, to become pregnant again. And my daughter's 27 and a half now. That's amazing. I knew I was a very hard pregnancy. When she was born, I was told she wouldn't live through her first weekend. She was born with a lung disease. The whole process from infertility to her, like it was just, and by then I was alone when she was born and I was 21 and I was still married, but we were within a year, we were not together anymore. And I, he was not there because of the military and uh, a tough pregnancy. Um, he wasn't there when she was born. And oh. I knew when I knew when I, I was I was delivering with a midwife at a birthing center. And I, I've recognized very intuitive people in my life. She looked at me at 37 weeks and said, Something's off. And I don't know what's off. And I have no reason to say that or pinpoint it, but I know something's not right. And I had a super tough pregnancy, but it had actually gone pretty well that last couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I transfer- when I moved from Hawaii to the mainland and I, I was under medical care and I had her, and it had been like two or three months, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden she would just kind of put the brakes on and put her hands on me and she's like, it's just not right. You have two, she, she wasn't like, how do you feel? And what do you think about that? She's like, you have two choices of hospitals which one would you like to transfer care to? Wow. 
Wow. So I picked, I was back in New England. I picked the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is a training facility and one of the best in the nation. Okay. And that saved my daughter's life. Wow. Not that it couldn't have happened somewhere else, but it did happen there. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got there and the doctor's doing one of those like 3D, lots of color ultrasounds, trying to like, what is off? We don't know what's off. Something's mm-hmm. off. And I had her and they told me that there would be a medical team and that medical team would be, as soon as I started to push, they kind of hit the hot button and there would be several people in the room. There were 21 people in my room. Wow. Um, which was fine with me. But I remember like, you know, when you're having a baby and you push, it's, it's very intense, right? Yeah. And so I remember looking up and being like, oh my God, there's a lot of people in my room and yeah. just not, not caring. But as a teaching facility, they asked me if I could have students in there. And I'm the person that's like, yep, mm-hmm. everybody come in. Just like, let, why don't you put me in the damn lobby? Yeah. And the amount, but I, that's an exaggeration. Until yeah. You look up and there's like 21 people. So they told me they would do a bedside evaluation. And if it looked like things were okay, they would leave with her. And if, if, they, if things did not look okay, they would hand, me, hand her back to me. And either she was just, didn't know, need to go to NICU, false alarm. Mm-hmm. But they all, everybody felt like something was wrong though. Oh, wow. Which was very interesting. The doctor there too, like, yeah, we just can't pinpoint it. Something's not like in medicine. You're like, give me the damn answer. Right. You know? And there was no answer. It was just like, yeah, it's just something's not right, but we don't know what's not right or why. Mm. At any rate, they whisked her off and I didn't hear for seven hours. And then uh-huh. the head neonatologist came in and said, Among other things, she has a lung disease called severe highland membrane disease. And if we had known how sick she was at birth, we would have handed her back to you and let her die in your arms. Because once they start the life-saving process, they can't stop. And she was of 29 babies, she was 37 weeks gestation, but of 29 babies, she was the most critical. And they told me she wouldn't live through her first 72 hours. So I had this experience and I'm divorced, right? And Mm -hmm. I thought, had this teacher in third grade that made a pivotal difference, hugely pivotal difference in my life. And I knew I was done with medical intervention, not with being pregnant necessarily, Mm -hmm. but with medical intervention. And I wanted to do foster care because although I didn't end up in foster care, I should have. And I, Mm -hmm. there was not a single file that I ever read of any kid that I hadn't, like, I get it. I get it. I've been there. I've been there. Like I've, Maybe it wasn't as severe in some ways than others. You know, I had a, a little girl that had been locked in the closet for like three days at a time. And that wasn't my experience. Yeah. But I could understand what she had gone through because of what I had gone through growing mm-hmm. up. So I did foster care. But there were many pivotal people. I probably went on a tangent, didn't answer your question. Um, <laughs> it was a big question. <laughs> it was a big question. I decided to do foster care to make a difference because my teacher made such a difference to me. And I knew I wasn't going to perpetuate the cycle. So if I'm not perpetuating, I would have felt remiss in not turning around and trying to do the same for others. And after my experience being pregnant with infertility, that seed was planted when I was 15. I'll just have a family in a different way. Okay. Uh, I went through infertility and I had a daughter that I was told wasn't going to survive. There are lots of ways to have a family. And I don't feel like I was the person who fit in the box. Mm-hmm. So I knew I probably was not going to have a life that fit in the box. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about your life. How is it like, how, how has it from your first pregnancy, have you tuned into your intuition when it comes to the next person that's coming into your life? How has that unfolded for you? Well, I think... <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I have a I have a doctorate in hindsight. Um, that's, <laughs> you know that first one. I was nineteen. We were only together for maybe three and a half years. It was a very young, naive love where you just I just gave everything, and quite honestly, I was so completely destroyed mm-hmm. and heartbroken from that. I didn't 
Brie was one when we were finally completely done. And for two years, I actually, it was some of the best two years of my life. I don't want to say the best. My, the re- everybody else in my family will be like, well, thanks a lot for you know, <laughs> not meeting that standard. But I packed in my car, my daughter, my dog, she had a pet rat that was in like a 10 gallon tank that was mm-hmm. like tra- trained. It was cool. My box of clothes, a box of her clothes, a box of clothes she was growing into, a box of her toys and a running stroller. And I basically traveled the country for two years. Wow. And it was, it taught me having that experience. I had the least amount of money. I would um, move to a town and where I knew someone, I would rent a room and then I would clean houses or be a nanny kind of babysit so I could have Brie with me all the time. And it was just delightful. Yeah. That kind of led me, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I don't tap into my intuition well, like other people do, or I'm super extroverted and I'm, I, my loudness drowns it out because I know I have it. <laughs> but, you know, things that happen in your past, later we decided to downsize and minimize. And all of a sudden it came flooding back. Like that was my happiest time. So, you know, now that we're, our kids are getting out of the house, we want to live full-time in an RV. So I think things circle back around. But with relationships, I was heartbroken and I chose a very nice guy who I felt like would never leave me. Mm-hmm. It seemed safe. Now mm-hmm. he was smart and athletic and a good person and he was a doctor and I had enough knowledge at that point. He's a dentist, so he didn't help me with the infertility. Not that kind of doctor. <laughs> but you know, um, we had a great friendship and still, if I see him, we don't particularly, I would say like each other Okay. over, over the, over time. We've been divorced for 15 years now, Okay. Uh, 14 or 15 years, but we were married for 11 years. And what I did go into that relationship with was I was armed with information. Mm-hmm. I probably can't have kids. I will not go through any kind of infertility. The next step would be in vitro. I want to do foster care. This is where I came from and this is why. And so I really had a very good handle at that point on who I was. And I chose someone who, you know, was emotionally a little bit, he was emotionally not super available. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to be, I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time and it had nothing to do with my decision because I didn't think about uh, finances. I remember Mm -hmm we were getting married and I learned how much he made. And I was just like, Oh my God. (laughs) So that did not, that wasn't part of my initial decision, but not having to worry as much about finances coming from below poverty and living on my own and really struggling, you know, that ended up being appealing. Mm -hmm. So I think I picked somebody who was a good guy who was safe, who went along with how I wanted to do things. And he, yeah, it was, he raised, he was, Brie knows her, her biological dad and they have a good relationship, but this was the man that ultimately raised her. Mm-hmm. And then we had seven other kids together. We did foster care. I was pregnant a total of seven times. Oh, wow. I lost three. Mm. And the last, the last pregnancy that I lost was almost 16 years ago now, but it was twins at 19 weeks and it resulted in Whoa. three surgeries, including a hysterectomy. So, wow. Yeah, my body definitely did its time. So I did give birth three more times and I had them at home with a midwife in Alaska. That's amazing. (laughs) The last two were water births. You know, I breastfed all my kids for a couple of years. I was super natural with my health and with, it was a very opposite of where I came growing up. Mm -hmm. And um, so in my relationships, I've chosen really great friends. Mm -hmm. That doesn't equate when it's a man who be, you become intimate with, that is not always a good equation. Mm-hmm. And we had, so there were eight kids total. I had seven with him. We, we had, I had given birth to four and adopted four at that point. Three okay. of those that I adopted as a side note of crazy, I adopted at birth and I breastfed those three also. Cause like, wow. yeah. Wow. So I was a really, I got to, I, I was a stay at home mom for a decade. I supported him in his dental practice. I worked in many different roles in that practice because we started it together. Mm-hmm. It was a great experience. I loved Alaska, the people and the location, not the weather so much and not how far away it was, but, yeah. but it was probably 
overall one of my favorite places to live. I spent, you know, a decade there with him and did that. And then for lots of reasons, we got divorced and I was the one, I'm the one that's really good at, this is my, (laughs) I'm a legend in my own mind, right? This is my perspective. (laughs) I try really, 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 really hard. Mm -hmm. And I put in 150%. And when I pull the plug, I pull the plug. Mm -hmm. If, if I look at you and go, I'm done, you're never talking to me again, essentially. I mean, like we're Mm -hmm. done. There's, there's, I, that means I've been banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out what's amiss. And with him, there was a lot more going on under the surface than I knew. And he told me about that actually after, which in part, I think was part of his uh, attempt at some sort of reconciliation. And I appreciate that because he certainly at that point did not have to tell me his story Mm-hmm. of his time and his, uh, where he was emotionally during our relationship. I mean, I was gone. He could have never told me anything, but we had to raise kids together. Right. And yeah. So then I, uh, we, we were moving to Reno, Nevada when we, when we realized that this, when I realized this was not going to work and I, it was ending. So I moved to a place where I knew no one. He was in prison for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And so I was by myself with eight kids, hadn't worked in a decade, and um, they were all 12 and under at the time. Wow. And I kept doing foster care. Wow. So I took in, I adopted another one. So five adopted, um, still four biological. I had had a hysterectomy by them. And I, I also had foster kids that had stayed long-term or aged out or in one way or another. And there were two of those with my ex-husband. Okay. So there were two kind of extra kids, kids that aged out with us or stayed long-term or, you know, so I had eight and two extras and then I adopted one and I had three more extras. I took in other kids to foster care. So I ended up with 14 total. Wow. And my daughter, who's now 27, several years ago, we actually worked in the same office and we had a mutual friend and they went on this really epic and fun. Hey, we need to find people for you to date. <laughs> and I was completely not interested. Completely. Yeah. It was very fun. They were awesome. I would have never done it without them. And so they would actually, you know, get to know people. And if this guy passed the test with the two of them, I, then I was allowed to meet <laughs> for coffee. Right? It was just, it was really actually nerve wracking. I mean, I'm extroverted, but I really wasn't super interested in dating. Yeah. Well, you had, you're healing from a divorce. And it had been, it had been some time, but you know, I I mean, like I clearly am not good at that. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at being friends and I'm great at sex. Like I love those two things. And you think, Mm -hmm. oh, you're a guy who's a friend and I like to have sex. We'll combine them. It does not not work. work out that way. Yeah. So they introduced me to this guy. Now, my friend is like the fantasy football tomboy of the party. Mm-hmm. And I had met a couple people and I was just like, I'm humoring them at this point, but they're excited. And it was, it was relatively fun. Plus I'm not meeting anybody they hadn't met. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's not a complete stranger. So she comes to me and she's holding this paper, you know, with this guy's information printed on it. <laughs> and she's like, he's the one. And I'm like, I'm sure he is for somebody. And she got choked up and I'm like, like, you're my fantasy football tomboy friend. You cannot be crying because that doesn't, it just, it's not comfortable for me. (laughs) And she's like, no, seriously. So I was introduced to Dane and Dane had four kids and his wife had died. And it was not at all the situation that I wanted. Mm -hmm. But the, we, we texted each other for about a week. He was actually, I wasn't supposed to meet him for a couple weeks because he was taking a trip to play golf in Florida and he was hit. He was T-boned by a car and broke his collarbone and couldn't go. So we met like two weeks earlier than we were planning. Wow. Like that lady hit you. So we would meet, you know, like it, it was one of those things where if I told, well, here's another thing. You will love this. We try to figure out meeting and he's on pain meds and his collarbones broke. You know, I mean, like we're texting. We had one phone conversation. He's great. I'm like, if he's half as good in person as he is through text and 
you know, it'll be a miracle. A funny, sarcastic, and uh, the day we finally were able to meet with just everything going on, I, I, I'm pretty sure he didn't realize it until later that day. I think we were together and he realized it. And fortunately, he didn't say anything to me for a couple of weeks, but it was his dead wife's birthday. Mm. And so I think when he realized it, he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So all these things happened to get us together on that day. Wow. Um, yeah. So my anniversary is his dead wife's Wow. Birthday. Yeah. So that's been an interesting experience because although I already said, like intuitively, I think sometimes I tune out as a little kid, I didn't. Mm -hmm. So I, I was very connected. I think society and uh, what's normal or expected or being a kid who was abused, I was very tuned in to like that there is a spirit world and it may be sort of peripheral, but it's around me all the time mm -hmm. where I could not not see it like directly, but feel it peripherally. So mm -hmm. I could see it that way. And I remember hitting a point where it just wasn't cool to talk about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so definitely Dane's wife, Danielle, I, I would be talking to my best friend. And there was a point where I remember sitting at the table and going, Danielle, like I super appreciate you and I get it but I need you to back out of my space a little bit because oh, wow. yeah, like I, I need you to not be here so much. And I can't explain why, what, like if you said, well, what was happening? I was finding dimes all over the place. And what's really funny is that it drove me nuts. And I looked it up and it's a sign of someone from the other side watching out for you and letting you know they're there. Like I would sweep and mop and walk back into the room and there would be a dime on the floor. Oh, wow. Like stuff like that. I just all that she, I just really felt like she was there all the time mm -hmm. in a way that because the, the, her, the youngest turned four the week that we met. So oh, wow. she had lost her mom when she was two. And mm. yeah. So like I get it. And I have some of her ashes in my closet. Wow. And I, all of that, you know, just, I was just kind of like overwhelmed. And I finally just mm -hmm. said, like, I, I need a break from this. Yeah. And I just sat in my kitchen out loud and it felt better. Like I was being, I felt woken up at night. I just felt like she was always there and it got a little overwhelming for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On a funny side, after all that, I told Dane, like I'm finding dimes all around. So there was one day I found like three dimes in a row and I'm like, Dane, seriously, come and look at this. And I looked up at him and I went, what's going on? So he started leaving dimes around the house just to <laughs> and ask. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and you know, there were things that, so I wasn't ready for a relationship. And from the moment we met, I was very standoffish that day. He mirrored my body language until I relaxed that whole, that whole thing. But from the moment that we really started texting each other, we've never been with anyone else. And we've, that was it for us. The, the day we met, we've never been apart. So mm. it was very unexpected. And I, I think when things got super tough, which they're going to get super tough, the mm -hmm. utopia doesn't exist nor it should. But when we were a few years in and things got super tough, I mean, I hit a point where I was like, look, I'm out. And he's like, well, that's what you do. You cut and run, right? You're good at that. Mm. That's your default. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much it is. Like I will get to this point, And once I hit this point, I am tapping out. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, what if the other person really genuinely wants to work on it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never actually been in that position, right? Where yeah. it's hard. And I'm like, I want to do the work. I want to do the work. I want to do the work. And the other person's really not doing the work. Mm -hmm. And eventually you're just like, okay, if you don't want to do the work, I'm done. I can't mm -hmm. do this alone. And I, I'm not willing to let it stay the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so he just looked at, at me and said, what if I am telling you that I want things to, I want to work through this with you. And I'm genuine and sincere. Mm -hmm. And I actually do the work. And you do the work with me. What would that look like? And I'm like, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> yeah, because you had never experienced I it. I had never experienced it. And so he's like, well, why don't you try it out? Because it might be worth it. And mm -hmm. we did. And it was. But wow. that was really... So coming from a place of abuse and working with kids that come from a place of abuse, 
you may hate the way it felt and what you went through, Mm -hmm. but it's familiar. Mm -hmm. And I did go to a counselor once and I've had more shifts in my perception or more growth through different modalities of energy work and not traditional one-on-one therapy. Mm -hmm. But I also got something from that as well. And one therapist said, you know, in your mind, you've created this list of things that are not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And you've over time added to this list of things that you want, the things that are acceptable, but you've never considered the middle ground. And so I'm, I, he's like, you, just because it's not on one of those lists, you've got to figure out like physical abuse is not acceptable, Mm -hmm. but how do you, how do you quantify, for example, emotional abuse? And it's insidious and it starts slowly and there are lots of good moments in the bad. So there were things like that. He's like, your, your gray areas are the areas that you really struggle with Mm -hmm. because I would look at the person think if they just hit me, I'd be done. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. But they don't just hit you right. because they know. Okay. Instead, they do all of these other things, mm-hmm. not speak to you for five days straight. Mm-hmm. You know, like whatever, tell you control it's, the time of day you vacuum. Like weird yeah, and stuff. It's, and it's, it's, it's I, I have given the analogy that you're, you're in an earthquake zone and the earthquakes hit daily. And you don't ever have a stable ground. Right. Because it's constantly changing back and forth. And so you think you're stable and then something changes really radically. And now you're like, okay, now what's my coping mechanism? Right. And also, if the, if the person wasn't being directly physically or emotionally abusive, they fall into sort of this this like just cross the line, just do a little bit more and you would be, you know, Mm -hmm. you're like riding this line of being narcissistic or being an asshole or being emotionally abusive. You're not like quite there. You're just (laughs) constantly playing with the line. Yeah. So it's really hard. It was really hard for me. He's, and, and he just kind of said, you need to change the rules of the list of what's not acceptable. Mm. And I don't know what that will look like to you. But it's okay to set parameters with what you are willing to tolerate and stick to that. Mm-hmm. And that deciding not to tolerate someone's behavior, because my biggest thing was the only thing I'm embarrassed about and that I, I'm embarrassed about and I feel failure is that I was, I was married three times and I've been divorced three times. So two of them were very short. hmm and I can blame it on being younger or blame it. I, I mean, a million different things. We can justify anything. But the thing is, I actually loved that person enough to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted it to work. And I was willing to put everything into it. And I'm far from perfect, but I know I'm willing to give 100%. Mm-hmm. So because it didn't work, although I could tell another woman, look, it's not a failure. You can only control yourself and you can't control mm-hmm. that. And you know, I have my doctorate in hindsight, but even looking back, like where were the signs and how could I have recognized them? Uh, they, they weren't there some of the time. Right. When I really look back and think, when should I have gotten a clue that this would potentially go sideways? And I don't think it's that cut and dry. I think the other person was in the situation too. And so things going sideways could have been, you know, the climate change of the relationship. You, I, there's just no way to make it cut and dry. But what I learned was I had to be really careful about what I would allow and what I wouldn't allow and really make a better list of what I was looking for. So tangential to that, you mentioned that you did some energy work. How do you think that's helped you navigate that better? Because I know for me in relationships, I feel the energy shift. Mm. And I do a lot of um, a modality called body talk. And so I go within and I find out ancestral stuff. I find out karmic stuff and I clear it out of my subconscious. And so as that clears out, I see the dynamic shift in whatever context that I'm working in. And has 
that been something you've seen that's helped you with the healing of your of your soul? Yes. So the first time was actually my freshman year of college, and I didn't know that that's what she was doing. I have a cousin who's the same age as my mom, okay. and I I lived with her the summer after my first year of college. Her three boys were my age, you know. I mean, like really fun, and she was a total hippie. And (laughs) like, you know, didn't shower, shave her armpits and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. she did, she did Reiki and she did a whole bunch of different stuff that, that quite honestly, I didn't even understand. Mm -hmm. And she must have, I mean, I have no question that she felt my trauma. Mm -hmm. My trauma at that point had been being molested, uh, losing my virginity to rape. And then kind of going on my own war path of taking prisoners and just like, oh, well, my first time's gone. So I'm going to have sex with everybody that I want to. And, you know, having sex with seven people in a year and a half or whatever it was. I think she probably, I never talked to her about that, but I think she knew that I was trying really hard to work through my sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. So she offered to give me a massage, which you think spa, right? Yeah. And, um, and I've never had a conversation with her about it. And I didn't even realize for years after that, but I remember her telling me like she'd have her hand on me and she'd go and reach for oil. And she was talking to me during this process saying, you know, one thing in her training was that you never lose contact with the person that you're working with. So she's like, if I move to go get oil, my hand is just going to be resting on you. You know, like she, so she would always constantly something about her body would be touching mine. It could, could have been her hip leaning up or leaning over across me, but she had hair down to her waist. And I remember her leaning over and feeling her hair. Like she was very big on maintaining a physical connection while she was doing the massage. Mm. And I remember her talking to me and she, And this is the interesting thing I've learned about, you know, NLP or EMDR or um, energy work is you never have to talk about the past trauma. You don't have to actually speak about it because Mm -hmm. it's going deeper than that, which is Mm -hmm. hard for me. I mean, I don't really know how to explain that except that I feel it. Mm -hmm. And she did something in me in that one session that was probably an hour and a half that was a total shift in my life. And I had no idea. I remember walking away feeling like, wow, that was weird. That was odd. And I didn't get it. And I think that that was her gift to me. Mm-hmm. Just, she gave that to me. She shifted energy in me. She had my first orgasm after that mm-hmm. <laughs> with a, a guy that was just a friend. You know, like I had never, I just, and I, Sexually, I never had any issue from that point. So I have been asked, like, how do you get through your sexual trauma? Because I'm super sexual. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, if twice a day is better than once, then why don't we do that? You know, Mm -hmm. forever. It doesn't matter if I'm sick or I'm pregnant or like, I'm very sexual. Mm -hmm. How can you have been molested and been raped and all of this stuff and feel good about your sexuality? And this, I must have gotten this from that energy work, but the way I word it is because those people don't belong in the bedroom. So I leave a chair for them outside a closed door and that's where they need to remain. Mm -hmm. So in my mind or in my energy, I, I shifted those people. You don't forget. You still work through forgiveness. You still have issues, but none of those issues are dealt with behind closed doors in my bedroom in the bedroom, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Totally so does. that was a massive shift in energy that I didn't recognize for years because I didn't understand what energy was. And I remember one day being like, holy shit, that's what Mo did. Like that, I mean, 150%, that's what she did for me that day. And I had no idea. And part of me wishes I did because I probably would have, I would have been seeking that out in other areas. For relationships, No, I don't think that helped because I didn't get into that until after I had been divorced the third time. Okay. Now, yes, I think I have that same thing. And, you know, you you come from a dissociated place Mm -hmm. where you're floating above your body sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not that extreme. But I think 
I had another pastor tell me that I needed to learn when to put myself in a bubble. And it's sort of like that. You're very there, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of bouncing off of you because I tend to take too much in and then I, I can't process everything that I bring in or it's hard. So if I come to it where I bubble myself or I slightly dissociate, not a floating out of your body, just like I'm, I just emotionally take a step back. Okay. Does that make sense? So for me, it feels like I'm witnessing my behavior instead of being in active in it, like, or, or I'm in a, in a situation where I'm communicating with someone and I hear something that used to trigger me and I feel myself saying, what's going on inside mm-hmm. that was a trigger. And then I respond differently. And then I don't have that, that tension. Yeah. You know, a, a month or so ago, I don't remember, I could not even begin to tell you what Dane and I were talking about. And it wasn't a situation that was a really big deal, but I was absolutely pissed. Mm-hmm. Just and I wasn't yelling and there was none of that, you know, but I, in, I felt something just bubble up inside. It's volcanic, right? Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I made a comment and he's like, what? And I'm like, wait a minute. Like logic and emotion don't play well in the sandbox. And so I said, this is so ridiculous. There is nothing about this situation that should make me feel angry. And yet I am so tremendously pissed and it doesn't make any sense to me. And, I, and so, I, I mean, I've gotten much better. It, I wasn't like an angry yell or a confrontation before, but I think those triggers, you don't stop and realize, oh, that's just a trigger. Mm-hmm. Oh, hang a time out here. Like, that's not, the, that's not where I'm at now. That's just a trigger. Right. So you recognize it and you kind of like diffuse the bomb, basically. Because I was never a yellow, yelling, angry, confrontational in any relationship. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I don't think I processed how I felt, where it was coming from, why, and what to do with it. Certainly not quickly like I do now. Which is amazing. Now it's super fast. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, whoa, wait a minute. And I actually love it because I get to say to this person who knows me better than anyone else, I have no idea what would trigger me in this conversation to feel this angry. And it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So I do feel that way, but that's separate from actually what our, what our conversation's about. So one, let's have the conversation about that situation. And two, let me examine where this is. Like, I can't even figure out where the trigger's coming from. I just need to diffuse this bomb, basically, mm-hmm. because it doesn't even make sense to me. Right. And emotion's not just some like flighty fly-by-night. You can ground it in logic sometimes. Like, so as far as relationships, once we had that hard spot and I made, and we looked at each other and I was like, damn, I really like you. You know, like, you're not making this easy. And he did not make it. He stopped me from just run, cutting and run. But when that happened, I was like, should I feel guilty that this didn't happen previously? Because if I marry somebody, I don't want to divorce them. Right. And then I, I got to really examine like, nope, I... I did everything that I could and I can't, I don't have control over that person. And mm-hmm. I was not willing to live with it the way it was. And I wasn't li- willing to live with the conditions of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's not a failure. No, that's, that's, that means we have, we have no ability to compromise in a situation. It sure feels like a failure, especially when kids are involved. Yeah. But you know, with, with Dane, because a lot of that work had been done when we really decided like, no, we're going to stick it out and really do this. And you recommit in that way. It's so much deeper. And most people will tell you that, that after going through something hard, they're closer. And I actually, from an energetic perspective, I don't, I don't think that we're closer to each other, but I think we're tuned in a lot better. Mm -hmm. And so it's, hasn't helped me in choosing, I don't know if I got lucky or I just, <laughs> I listened to my friend and my daughter who were like, he's the one, this is the mm. one, you know, I, I don't know what it was because certainly there were no warning signs with him, but there were things on my list that didn't get checked off. And like <laughs> my youngest son was, let's see, 
11 at the time. I had, yeah, there's an eight-year gap. So she had just turned four. I didn't want to date anybody that had kids younger than my youngest. That makes sense. Okay. Like that was just like yeah. the rules of, of j- dating Jen. Um, <laughs> you know, I also wanted somebody who was at least six foot two. And he's like, I'm, I'm almost five nine. He's like an inch and a half taller than I am. He's okay. like five, ten and a half or something. And I'm like, yeah, no, I can't date him. He's not over six feet tall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, how stupid is that? <laughs> but the kid thing was harder because I had done at 14 kids at this point. Yeah. And I had just gotten down to eight living at home. And I didn't want to go back and do the little kid thing. Yeah. I just, I felt like I was ready to move. Burnout. Yeah. And even if I wasn't burnt out, I liked where I was and I wanted to move forward. So there were things like that. I didn't care that he had four kids. The dead wife made me uncomfortable. Like nobody wants to fill the shoes because you're not filling the shoes. You know, I mean, like, and I remember early on him saying, yeah, well, you know, we have some of Danielle's ashes. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot deal with your dead wife's ashes. Like instantly. And I, instead of saying that, fortunately, I was like, so out of curiosity and my comfort zone, because that's uncomfortable for me, Mm -hmm. why do you have some of your wife's ashes? Yeah. I was like, well, you know, when she died, I, we went and they spread them over Tahoe and all that stuff. She had a younger sister who was only 15 when she passed away. He saved them for if she ever got older and reached out and needed some sort of closure. Okay. Well, when you hear that, what does everybody do? They're like, Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just, I, I was better at being clear this time around, one, because like I've screwed it up. It, I, it just hasn't worked for me. So if it's going to, I'm going to do everything on my end to make it better mm-hmm. and um, be more intentional about that. I also do think, you know, people think I'm going to find my soulmate. And Dane and I both think like, okay, there's however many billions of people on the planet, however many hundreds of thousands in the area that we live. And I could have met one of probably a dozen people that I connected with just as well, Mm -hmm. potentially, you know, when you really do the numbers. So it's not like there's this one person that's for you, but I do think you can find someone where the connection just clicks more easily. Mm -hmm. And definitely, I mean, that connection from the beginning clicked very easily. We had a lot of the same goals isn't really the right word, but just, you know, we both wanted to eat healthy. So what does that look like for the two of us? We both exercise. So what does that look like for the two of us? We both want balance. We didn't lose ourselves to our kids. We maintained our own identity. We didn't take on each other's identity, but we support it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't play golf, but I've become a really good caddy. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I didn't become a golf pro wannabe because he is right. You know, we, we just kind of had the same, very similar belief systems that then we just had to look at, okay, well, what does that look like for you and for me? And how do we make that happen together? We had a blended family. We had 12 kids at home for a wow. long time, Wow! really quickly. And I became the only mom a four-year-old knew. And I oh. had ashes, right? Yeah. So what did I do? Uh, there's so many interesting things like the fact that we met on Danielle's birthday where I just think you, maybe the past me would have just blown that off as like an interesting coincidence where now I see energy at work for you Mm -hmm. that you can, I think, I, I think the energy work has made me more receptive. If you've ever bought a car, you buy a Jeep, all of a sudden you see Jeeps everywhere. Mm -hmm. There aren't more Jeeps. You've just, you just notice them now. Mm-hmm. because they've been brought to your awareness. And energy work has done a lot of that for me personally in my own feelings. And it's done a lot for me in working with other people in the family. I mean, my kids and, and my approach. If I had to change anything about my parenting, because I've done a really good job, but I'm a loud personality. And so there are times it's like, stop yelling. And I'm like, I'm actually, I'm happy. <laughs> not yelling at anyone, but I'm yelling. 
mm-hmm. right? And so I don't want to be con- accused of yelling when I feel like that's not the place I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm more aware of how other people perceive things, regardless of my intent, mm-hmm. I guess. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. But there have been a lot of shifts in that. And I'm going to give out a premonition. The ashes that we have saved that were for Danielle's younger sister, I think that little four-year-old girl is going to hit a point in her teens where she learns the whole story about her mom. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be how she and her dad have closure. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting sometimes when you're presented with something, like your wife's ashes make me uncomfortable. Yeah. And then I find out why they're there. And you're like, oh, well, now I feel good that we have them. Mm-hmm. And then time years go on and you realize, yeah, I think their purpose actually, that intent was great because it got us here mm-hmm. because the purpose has changed. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. So yeah. energy that way, I think I recognize a lot more. I just see more Jeeps. <laughs> Oh, Jen. Wow. What an awesome conversation. Thanks. I'm just so grateful that we connected and that I've been able to hear some of your journey and share some really beautiful thoughts. Do you have any final points you'd like to share? I think people really need to be, need to recognize that the things that happen to you aren't what defines you, but they are part of your story which is pretty incredible. And so it's kind of like Spider-Man. You can use this for the power of good or with great power comes great response. That whole sort of feeling, you know, it's up to you to direct those things that happened to you that weren't in your control into the way that you want them to be. And you don't have to have 18 kids to do it. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. You as well. Thank you. The action item of the week is to tune in to find out if you're an empath and find out where you need to show up with compassion for yourself and cultivate taking care of what you really need emotionally so you can be fully present for yourself. That's it for the week. Until next time, I bid you the highest peace, Love and prosperity. Namaste. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul? Shine, I can feel it, yours and mine. Close your eyes and witness it inside. In your bones, you will know. Trust and let go. Let it flow.